If you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, whether it's a book Bible or on a device, go ahead and open up to Romans, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be reading just two verses this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I am once again taking a break from our series in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a Soma regular, we we started a couple months ago to make our way through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But last Sunday, being the last Sunday of October, that was Reformation Sunday. Um, And we did talk a little bit about Reformation. We sang Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. But since yesterday, October 31, was Reformation Day, uh, and today being just hours later, I decided in, in terms of my calendar and my preaching plan, we would have today be a Reformation uh, Day, Reformation Sunday focus. And so that's that's the goal this morning. Let me just tell you up front, this will be a little bit more lecture than, than sermon proper, uh, but I do pray it's impactful. I've, I've been excited for this day. If you know me, I, I love Reformation Day, and I love the fact that... Um, my two boys, I'm going to brag about my boys for a moment, and they, they love that, uh, especially in, in public. Uh, they they both greeted me yesterday and said, hey, Dad, happy Reformation Day. I know, like, I almost cried. Like, it was so, and I'm, I'm not being funny. Like, it was good. It was good. Um, so, yes, it was also that day where people dress up and get candy. Uh, but in our home, we, it's kind of a joke, but also very serious that uh, I love to have us remember and talk about Reformation. And so that's that's where we're going this morning. Now, here's what we're going to do. I read Romans 1, and we're going to get to that passage. But I, I want to talk for just a few minutes, and maybe for some of you this is going to be stuff you know, uh, but I want to talk about some of the what, when, where, and who of Reformation and Reformation Day and, and what this is and, and all of those things. So what exactly is the Reformation? Uh, what is Reformation Day? Why are we talking about that, you know, if it was 500 years ago, does it have a bearing on us today? And the answer is uh, to that, I believe, yes. But let's, let's spend a little bit of time. So the Reformation is, in one sense, part of our church history from about 500 years ago uh, or so, right in, in the heart of the 16th century. Now, there were what we call pre-reformers, and the two big names are John Wycliffe and Jan Hus. Uh, Jan Hus, um, again, there's some really neat stories and how God and his just sovereignty like has have him living a hundred years before Martin Luther and, and, and some interesting things that took place. But but they're considered the pre-reformers, okay? And and even going back further, some would even say that uh, Saint Augustine would, would be a pre-reformer. But but again, in terms of history, we're talking five hundred years ago or so. And the big name in terms of Reformation is Martin Luther. 
and of course, there's names like John Calvin, John Knox in Scotland, and, and more. There's so many more uh, that we could and really should know and, and talk about. Before Martin Luther was the reformer, and I should say I have been thinking about this all week too, three years ago, um, during the year of the 500th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Thesis, which we'll get to, I got to go to Germany that summer, and it was so fun to hear these German tour guides translate into English, and instead of calling Martin Luther a reformer, their translation was the reformator. And the first time I heard that, I like had to do a little processing, and so the first thing I thought of was terminator. And I had to like think about the words, okay, someone who terminates is a terminator, and like an exterminate, someone who exterminates bugs or whatever is an exterminator. Okay, so someone who's reforming is a reformator, and I just I thought that was so fun. Like I should use that more uh, here in 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 America speaking English. So before he was the reformator and a reformer, uh, Martin Luther uh, was studying law. That's what his family wanted for him. And in uh, 1505, uh, so again, still uh, many years before the the famous events. He was traveling back to university. He had been home visiting his family. Um, but all the while, Luther um, was raised as a, as a believer in, in, in the church, and, and he just struggled with, with, was it ever enough how he lived? Was he ever good enough? Did he ever do enough things? Was God pleased with him? And he just struggled almost his whole life, even, even after the breakthroughs would come wrestling with if, if God was pleased with him. And so as he's traveling back in 1505 to the university, a lightning storm occurs and some lightning uh, struck very close to him. Uh, some accounts say that it, that it hit the animal he was on and he fell off. Others say it was nearby and he you know, was flown off. Uh, but Martin Luther believed that this might very well be uh, the judgment of God upon his soul. And he thought maybe there was going to be another lightning storm strike and he would die. And so he, he cried out to a patron saint. Uh, that's, again, what a lot of the people in the church did in those days. And for him, it was Saint Anne. Uh, she was the, the saint for minors, which was uh, what um, his father was. And so he, he made this vow, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. And he, he didn't die then. He wasn't struck by lightning. And so he uh, honored what he vowed, and he, he left the law. Of course, it upset his folks. His father would be very disappointed, but he would enter the Augustinian order and become an Augustinian monk. But even then, he still wondered, was it enough? Now I'm a monk, and I'm, I'm doing all this for God. Is it enough? Are these righteous acts enough for God to be pleased with me? So that was 1505. Five years later, in 1510, think about this for a minute. Luther would travel from uh, Erfurt, Germany, where he was studying, to Rome. Now, nowadays, not a big deal, probably. Uh, maybe the cost of the air flight or whatever, or train, I suppose. 639 miles on foot. He, he traveled from Erfurt, Germany, all the way to Rome. And uh, he was encouraged to go there by his mentors because, again, he just struggled. He struggled with this righteous God and wondering if he could be righteous. And when he got to Rome, he, he had many things occur, but one of the things that he did was he, he scaled up what are, what are called the, uh, the Scala Sancta, if I'm pronouncing that right. These are um, supposedly the marble stones that Christ himself 
uh, ascended before his trial and Pilate before Pilate and then descended when he had been condemned. And so supposedly, right, those stones made their way to Rome uh, 1,500 years later and were still there. But at that time, if you were a devout person and you got to Rome, uh, you could on your knees ascend these steps. And Luther did that. And when he, he got to the top, uh, there was a Dominican friar who opened a wooden box and Luther would drop some coins in. And after doing that, he would, was handed a piece of paper. And this, this was a letter of indulgence. So indulgence um, was, was, was a, a, in some ways, to, to put it simply, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Or more properly, to get out of purgatory or, or hell kind of thing. It was, it was a permit. It's kind of what the word means when you translate it. Uh, that, that now you've, you've done something and now this, this letter gives you something, gives you some merit before God. And so he, he did drop the coins in. And now having made this pilgrimage, having climbed the stairs, having put money in, having got the indulgence, maybe this now would be enough. Maybe this would help ease his conscience. It didn't. And, and Luther, um, it's interesting. This, this was common practice to, to, to get these letters of indulgence. And for a lot of years, even into what we sometimes think of as uh, like Luther's years doing his reformating, um, he wasn't completely initially uh, at the place where he thought indulgences were bad. He, what, what he would get to is a place where the abuses of the indulgences would, would get to him. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. So Luther returns from Rome to Germany. And now in, in the 1510s, in these, these years, a lot of things would take place. In, in Wittenberg, Germany, Luther would become a professor and a preacher at, at the local churches, and he, he just would study theology and the scriptures. And one of the things that took place, and I'll again come back to this some more in a little bit, he, for the first time in those years, got to go uh, back to the source. So in those days, it was a big deal uh, in, in the humanities and university to talk about getting to the source. And, and for all these years prior, we, we take this for granted nowadays, right? We can grab a Bible on our phone and get to any language we want at any moment. Many of us, I know I have a lot of printed Bibles. One of my kids was in my office recently and was drilling on me, Dad, why do you have so many Bibles? Uh, and, and I do, and, and maybe you do in your home as well. 500 years ago, um, people didn't have a copy of the Bible, uh, they, they were lucky if they could go to Mass and hear uh, someone speak from some teaching from the Bible, but they just, they weren't distributed yet. Now, again, God in his sovereignty and in his plan, uh, Gutenberg's printing press had just been invented right in those years, and so books and things were going to be copied, and that was happening. But the Bible was taught in Latin. That was the religious language. And so for a German person to hear the scriptures, but they didn't understand it anyway at church. And, and so Luther gets to get to the source. He got to open a Hebrew Bible and read the Old Testament in Hebrew. He would get to go to the Greek New Testament and read the scriptures in their original languages. And this was playing a big part in what God was doing in his life in, in these years. And again, all the while, he continues to wonder, is this enough? Am I doing enough? Do I have enough works and, and a merit for God to be pleased with me? Well, in 1517, 
So 503 years ago, uh, there's an event that, again, most of us are aware of. It's typically what we think of as, and scholars will typically say, was the event that started the Reformation. But again, lots of things were happening. But on that year, on October 31, this is why that that date now is in our history called Reformation Day, uh, Luther did something. Now, again, it wasn't just something he quickly did. He couldn't just go to his word processor and type up 95 bullet points that he had been thinking about, okay? But he had been writing 95 theses, as we call them. And his issue then was on the abuses related to the indulgence sales, the the abuses of it. So, for example, there had been this uh, preacher, itinerant preacher that had come through near his own town of Wittenberg uh, named Tetzel. And some of you will know this this story. Uh, Tetzel was was a great uh, emotional preacher. He knew how to to, to speak in such a way as to get people worked up emotionally. He he was good at having props. I, I love the, the movie Luther that came out, oh, maybe almost 20 years ago now, and uh, and, and I recommend it highly. And, and there's one scene when the actor playing Tetzel sets up his little mobile pulpit and all this stuff, and he and he has a flame there, and he holds his hand over the flame and, and burns his skin, and he pulls it back, and people's eyes are wide, and, and he goes on to say, you know, that's what's going to happen to you in hell. Can you handle that? And, you know, no, nobody wants to have that happen to them. And, and so he, he, he was a good communicator, uh, but he would say things like, when a coin in the coffer, meaning the, the container rings, a soul from purgatory springs... So he had these little pithy sayings, and and then he would say things like, "Is it is it not something you can do to to give some money so that you can free your own soul from purgatory, or or maybe even if you have loved ones that you don't know if they're going to go to heaven, if you put in some money, their their souls can be freed too." And and so Luther struggled with what he felt was an abuse of of this, and in fact, all that money was going back to the Pope to help build. Uh, this big basilica and to pay Michelangelo for the artwork he was doing uh, inside as well. So a lot of things happening and and why Tetzel was preaching and and asking for all this money. And and Luther knew this wasn't right. He knew there were people in his own town who had barely enough money to buy food, and yet they were going across the river to these other towns and giving away their money to this preacher to get these pieces of paper when they should have kept that money and, and fed their family. And, and so he he had enough. So on October 31, and that date is important too, because on November 1st, that's All Saints Day. And by this time in, in church history, um, there were calendars that abounded where on every day of the year, there was a different saint that, that could be kind of venerated and thought about. And so on, on November 1, there were going to be a lot of people coming to celebrate All Saints Day. So Luther goes to uh, social media on October 31st. The social media of his day, there was no Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, the social media was the church door of the city church. And so he goes there with his 95 thesis and he nails it to the door as, as a way of saying to anyone, although it was written in Latin, so it was likely for, again, those that would be studying theology coming through the next day, what has Dr. Luther written? By putting it there, he was inviting people to read and to debate and to talk. And again, he wanted to reform the church. Uh, Luther was never interested in 
uh, having a denomination begin with his name. <laughs> he wasn't trying to start Lutheranism. Uh, he, he wanted reform from the church. He loved the church. And he thought, surely if we debate and see these things, and maybe if the Pope understands these abuses that have been going on, reform will happen from within the church. Well, um, that's not exactly what would end up happening, but people did read what Luther wrote. And again, because of the printing press, uh, they were taken and copied. They were translated into German. So now uh, people that could read were reading them in, in the common language. And, and that was why uh, it's often called the, the spark of the Reformation, these 95 theses. But Luther, again, still is, is coming to grips with things. And I, I can't underscore enough how important getting to the source was for him. In these years, he would be studying and, and meditating on the Psalms and Romans and Hebrews. Uh, and, and, and God's word was transforming him. He would, he would write about his breakthrough, the famous word that he used in his own writings as the German word, it's this breakthrough moment that, that would come to him. Luther wrote to his mentor, Johann von Staupitz, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone, not in their prayers, merits, or their own good deeds. One historian would summarize that, that sentence like this as the essence, that was the essence of Luther's reforming agenda. And again, to get to that place where he is teaching people to trust in only Jesus would come because he was rediscovering it. So that's a big part of what is going on in the Reformation. The gospel, in a sense, we could say, had been hidden. It had been hidden in hundreds and hundreds of years of people not having the Bible, not hearing the Bible, of only a few, really a few who could read Latin, read the Bible. But even then, there were problems. And, and one of the things Luther would find is that one place, he, he realized the Latin mistranslated the scriptures. The Latin said that we are to do penance. And this is what fed all of the indulgence and excesses. Because if you pay for this piece of paper, you're, you're doing penance. But really, when he got to the source, he saw that, in fact, no, the words were do repentance. And so this mistranslation in the Latin just fed years and years of, of this practice. And so Luther is seeing what actually the scriptures have uh, and would say. Um, Luther's testimony about his, his breakthrough, about his Dirkbrook, is, is very powerful. Uh, let me read what Luther would write years later about what happened to him. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was placated by my satisfaction. I, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemous, blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And I would say, as if indeed... It is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, 
I beat importantly upon Paul, the Apostle Paul, at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So he would write that uh, again many years, many years later. This is all happening somewhere between 1517 and 1520 because 500 years ago now, so 503 was the 95 thesis, but 500 years ago now in, in October, and in fact, around October 10, Luther would receive an official document from the Pope basically saying, unless you recant what you've been writing, you will be deemed a heretic and you will be excommunicated. Luther was given 60 days to respond to this. And so during these, these days, 500 years ago, he's wrestling through what he had written 90 or three years prior and how he had grown in his understanding. And as he would eventually respond to the Pope, and basically, you know, say, sorry, Pope, I'm, I'm not recanting. That would lead him in 1521 to stand trial and to take his famous stand. But that's, that's next year and a few months. But at this point, 500 years ago, he's writing his response. And what he continues to say over and over again is essentially this. Unless I'm convinced by this book, then, then I'm not recanting. And if you show me where I've erred in my writings, where it goes against this book, those are the places I'll recant. And yet Luther keeps saying, I keep appealing to Scripture. And the Pope and the, the Papists, they keep appealing to tradition and history. And, and so Luther said, I, I can't. I can't recant. Because what I've been saying comes from the Scriptures. So this is, again, why the Reformation is a rediscovery of the Gospel, a rediscovery of the Scriptures. Uh, there's a theologian in our day named Matthew Barrett. I love this, and I agree with this. In light of Luther's Dirkbrook, his, his discovery there, if we were to use but one word to characterize the Reformation, it might be rediscovery. And, and that, it's a rediscovery of the evangel. So evangel is simply the transliteration of the word gospel, which means good news. So the Reformation was an evangelical reform at its root. I was just talking to someone recently. Of course, that word evangelical can mean so many different things, nowadays especially. Luther was a confessional evangelical, as uh, meaning he was all about that word, the gospel, pointing to 
uh, news of what had happened in, in space and time. That The word gospel prior to becoming a church word was used uh, to announce uh, victories and, and events that happened in the political world. It, it spoke of events, news. And so that word gets picked up by the, the New Testament writers to be specifically the good news of what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as Luther's going back to the source and seeing it in the Bible, it's just causing him to be born again as he hears what in fact it means and how it is one can be right with God. Let me turn our attention back now to Romans 1, 16 and 17 here for a moment. I can smell the brats. I hope you can too. And it's very distracting. I better finish. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. Again, these are those two verses that Luther quoted in describing his conversion. The Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, the good news, don't, don't forget that. Gospel means good news. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is a nutshell summary of the gospel from the Apostle Paul. This is the central thesis from which everything else Paul writes in this book of Romans would would flow from. Let me just talk about this for a moment. Notice Paul says that he is not ashamed. It's funny that he puts it in the negative, probably a stylistic way of, of communicating. He could have said it positively. I'm proud of the gospel. I'm boasting in the gospel. And in fact, elsewhere, he would pull language like that. But, but here he, he puts it in the negative. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God. It's not a philosophy. The gospel is not some suggestions for how to live your life. Hear that. The gospel is not a philosophy. It is not some suggestions on how to live life. The gospel is news about something that happened that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Scripture, says is the power of God for salvation. It transforms. It changes things. It, it, it does something that only God, whose it is, can do. And what does that power do? He says it's for salvation. The gospel changes hearts and minds and life orientation and understanding and everything. There's no other power on earth that can save. And it's not just about having a ticket to heaven, but, but a salvation that, that, that transforms a person now to, to, to turn toward God and then to pursue God in this life. And there's a final salvation, a glorification that will come. And in life, there's a progressive salvation, or we call it progressive sanctification. And the gospel is that power from start to end, which is partly why he speaks here of from faith for faith or from faith to faith. Like it, the gospel of God is God's power to, to do what people need done, to, to save them so they can enjoy God and enjoy his kingdom forever. I want to circle back for a moment, though, to this idea of not being ashamed of the gospel. I, I love this from Tim Keller. He writes about there are four ways that we in our day can, can be ashamed of the gospel or, or can find the gospel offensive. He writes, one, the gospel, by telling us that our salvation 
is free and undeserved, that's really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. This offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. Number two, the gospel is also really insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. It tells us that we are so wicked that only the death of, a, of the Son of God could save us. This offends the modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. Number three, the gospel is offensive, insulting, because by telling us that trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough, thereby insists that no good person will be saved, but only those who come to God through Jesus. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own or her own way. I like this line from Keller. We don't like losing our autonomy. And then fourth, the gospel is offensive. We were embarrassed, ashamed by it, because number four, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving, that is, not conquering and destroying, and that following him means to suffer and serve with him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life, and it also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. Well, the Apostle Paul was not offended or ashamed of the gospel. Paul goes on to say that, that this salvation, this power to save, is offered to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Here we have the first explicit statement that the only way to receive the gospel and its power is through faith. And this, of course, was at the heart of what God was saying to Luther, that it's this, this instrument of faith alone. And this is a great illustration from Tim Keller. He says that faith is thus the channel or connection to the power of the gospel. Just as a light switch on the wall is the channel or connection between a light bulb and an electrical source. A channel, a connection. And Paul says it's available to everyone. It came first to the Jew, that is through Jesus, but it was for Gentiles as well. Everyone and anyone. So it's, it's wide, but there's still a limit. It's to those who would believe, those who would trust in it. And this gospel that is so powerful, that, that had this impact on Luther, it's, it's for, in verse 17 now, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And this is what blew Luther's mind, that, that, that God, through what his son accomplished, um, it, we have revealed this righteous God and the righteousness of God. It's all about the Son, and there's an achievement of the gospel. It's revealed in what Jesus did. We can think about righteousness many different ways, but, but let's just think for a minute about the English word uh, righteousness. Again, Tim Keller is very helpful. He says, what does it mean to be right with your company? What does it mean to be right with your government or to be right with another person? It is a positional word. It means to have a good or right standing, to have no debts or liabilities that you owe the other person or organization. You are acceptable to the other party because your record has nothing on it to jeopardize the relationship. 
the other party has nothing against you. And so the righteousness of God can also be rendered as the righteousness from God. And this is where Luther would famously speak of an alien righteousness, not not little green uh, aliens, but outside, and a righteousness that comes from the outside in. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from God, and it's revealed from faith for faith. It's, it's, it's as John Stott, the famous commentator, would say, God's faithfulness to his promises and in the life and death of Jesus Christ always comes first and ours is never other than a response. Faith is a response to God and that righteousness from God, the righteousness that is God, the righteousness that he, he declares us to be in Christ is, is, is received through faith. It's a gift. Nothing we do on our own. We, we simply get to, get to receive. Jesus' salvation is like receiving a pardon and a release from death row in prison. But it's more than that. Not only is it that, if that's all it were, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be left on our own. And I love this. One more time, Tim Keller, he says, if that's all it were, we'd be free, but on our own, left to make our own way in the world, thrown back to our own effort if we're to make anything of ourselves. But in the gospel, we discover that Jesus has taken us not only off death row and then has hung around our neck the Congressional Medal of Honor. We are received and welcomed as heroes as if we had accomplished extraordinary deeds. And so for Luther, all of a sudden now, going back 500 years to see that God would look and declare someone righteous and had nothing to do with merit, his own or from others, supposed saints. It had nothing to do with paying for indulgences. It had nothing to do with being good. It had everything to do with the righteousness that comes from God, where God declares a person righteous. And so even the Apostle Paul back in Romans would quote Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther rediscovers this gospel and it changes him. And I think that the gospel needs to continue to change us. The Reformation was, was necessary. I've said before, we wouldn't be here today without the Reformation. God works through means, and, and the means, many of them, some of them are, are people who in God's wisdom and time and space were, were vehicles. Uh, Luther is not a perfect person. No one is. We know that. Um, and even as much as I, I love studying him and, and what he did, uh, he was very, very flawed. He he was very salty in his language. In fact, it brings lot, lots of laughter to some pastors uh, that I'm friends with. We look at this website every now and then called the Luther Insulter, and basically just pulls these sort of random quotes from Luther's writings where he calls people very salty names and things from his writings. And, and so um, he, he was like that, and, um, and he, he, he was a human, but, but he was available, and God used him. And as he got to the source of the Bible, he rediscovers the gospel and he realizes we need again to reform the church. And that was his goal. And so a motto would come out of the Reformation, always reforming. The church needs to be always reforming. And that is true. Even today, God's people and local churches should always be reforming. But that, that 
has a place where, where that reform goes to, like Luther, what does the source say? We want to make sure that everything we do flows from this, not our own ideas, not what's popular in culture and the world, but reforming according to God's word. And so it's worth us being thankful for Luther and what happened 503 years ago with the 95 Thesis, what would happen just under 500 years ago when he would stand at the famous uh, Diet of Worms in the city of Worms and and again say, I will not recant. Here I stand. I, I can do no other. And, and this gospel would go forth and, and so many others would be impacted and, and the church would be reformed and it would lead to some splits. But praise the Lord for these these men and women 500 years ago, far and far away from us, that were convicted by the, the gospel, the power of God for salvation, and they weren't ashamed of it. And, and it, it changed their lives, but then it wasn't done in private. Those changed lives then went on, and, and they changed their towns and communities because the power of God for salvation is, is that powerful. So we need to be reminded of the Reformation. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded to go to the scriptures, to the source. I thank God for the Reformation, for Luther, Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, and many, many others. For Huss, 100 years before, and Wycliffe. They weren't perfect, but they, they did point to the one who is perfect. And that brings us now, this morning, to the Lord's Supper. So hopefully you have your little, uh, not coffee creamer, but uh, your communion elements. And so again, most of you know by now, there's two openings here. So in a moment, uh, we'll do the first layer and then peel back to to get the little wafer. Uh, And then we'll eat together. Okay, we want this to be as much as we can, even in these contexts, a family meal, and so we're a church family, and so we take and eat together, and then we'll we'll take and drink together. So I'll just read from the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 27. The Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So we want to just pause for a moment. I want to just give you some space. It's good anytime, but especially before having this family meal, to just seek the Lord quietly. Lord, is there is there any unconfessed sin? Is there anything between me and you that, yes, Christ has dealt with, but I'm, I'm positionally okay, but, but I'm out of fellowship? Reveal, Holy Spirit, to me what that might be, and just ask him to search your heart. Ask, ask him as the psalmist 
wrote, search my heart, O God, and know my heart. And just spend some time. Another good practice is to think, Lord, am I out of sorts with anyone else? And do I need to have some conversations? Maybe now, maybe today, maybe, maybe this week. And, and respond and just, just do the business you need to do, you, you and the Lord, to, to contemplate in a worthy way the sacrifice that Jesus went through whether or not he ascended 28 marble steps that managed to stay intact over 1,500 years and make their way to Rome or not. He, he did literally stand before different leaders and undergo horrible beatings, and he was spit on and mocked. And then he went to the cross because he loved us and, and had to pay penalty for sin. So for most of us, we... We cherish that. Maybe there's some of you, though, that that's still new and you've never in faith believed on the gospel. That that's what we're getting to. Jesus' death on the cross and then ultimately his burial and resurrection. We speak of that as his, his passive obedience. But, but he also actively obeyed. He, he lived the perfect life that we can't live. So his life and his death and burial resurrection speaks to this gospel that is the power of God for salvation. If you've never believed on it, I invite you to put your trust no longer in your own good works of any kind, but in the Lord Jesus. And if you do, then this meal's for you. So let's spend a few minutes quietly praying and then I'll lead us to eat the bread together.